So in John chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus um, is a fascinating man, a very powerful man, an example of someone that we might follow. I think John may include this account of Nicodemus, not because he adds credibility to Jesus' claim, but because uh, Nicodemus may be like many of us and are seeking and wondering and questioning and wondering who is this man named Jesus. And Nicodemus um, was a very powerful man. Scripture tells us that he was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. Later in Scripture, uh, it, it says that, a teacher of the law, most likely a very rich man. Uh, later on in John chapter 19, we're told that Nicodemus uh, with Joseph of Arimathea uh, take the body of Jesus and take it to a new tomb of Joseph of Arimathea's. Uh, but also uh, Nicodemus brings about 100 pounds of spices to anoint the body. Now, that would be... Uh, a, an enormous amount of spices, much more than would be needed. Uh, most theologians would say that in today's value, it would be somewhere between $150,000 and $200,000 worth of spices. He's rich, he's powerful, he knows the law. And it's not just that he knows the Torah, not just that he knows Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy uh, very, very well. It's that he knows the Jewish law on top of the written law. The non-God-ordained law, the Jewish law, it would be different. I'll give you an example. So the, the Torah um, has about three paragraphs about the Sabbath, just three. Uh, but then the Jewish leaders came along uh, with something called the Mishnah and added to that. It was a scribal law, and it contained 24 chapters on the Sabbath on top of the three paragraphs that were written by God. Not, not only that, but later on, uh, there was a, another uh, a commentary basically written on that Jewish law uh, that added another 156 double-paged, folio-sized papers uh, on, on the law, on the Sabbath. That's all of it. And so Nicodemus was not just, he didn't just know the law as in what the Bible said about these things. He knew everything about what the Jewish leaders and the Jewish law had to say about all of this. And so this is why it's no secret that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night. He, he's curious, but he's also afraid what others may think. His position may be threatened by just talking to Jesus. He hasn't quite made up his mind yet, and John takes the effort to write down that he comes in the night, which we would assume, and I believe it means by secret. Nicodemus is seeking. He's wondering. He's waiting and watching what Jesus says and what he does, and even still what's incredible and Nicodemus addresses him as teacher, as rabbi. It would be a very formal greeting for Nicodemus, especially a ruler of the law, to come in to this setting and address Jesus as teacher, as rabbi. It seems, I believe, that the two uh, scenarios that he would come by night and his address of rabbi would be insulting. If I were Jesus, I, I might think, well, you say that I'm a teacher, but you don't want anyone else to know that you're listening to me. Well, why don't you address me as rabbi at the temple and then we'll talk. But Jesus doesn't do that. He, he lets Nicodemus lean in with his wondering and he meets him there. Did you know that it's safe? It's safe to invite Jesus into your search before you have it all figured out. 
Did you know it's safe to invite Jesus into your wandering, into your seeking, into your confusion, into your misunderstanding? It's okay to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't really know what to make of you quite yet. It's all right to go to him with these statements in this way. This is how Nicodemus approaches him at night in secret. And Jesus does not condemn him for it. He doesn't meet him and say, hey, listen, when you know who I am, when you declare that I am the Messiah that's come to save the world, then we can talk, Nicodemus. When you've placed all your faith and all your hope and all your trust, when you have forsaken your own life to follow me, then we can talk. When you've gotten rid of the addiction, then we can talk. When you figured out how to make sense of your life, then we can talk. He doesn't do that. Not once does Jesus condemn Nicodemus for his seeking. Instead, he leans in and engages Nicodemus right where he is. I love what Luke says in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus is saying this. He says, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but to sinners. Jesus reminds us that he leans into your seeking. And I love this about this story, just in the very first few uh, verses where Nicodemus comes in the setting, it teaches an important lesson that Jesus welcomes seekers. Jesus welcomes seekers. He doesn't demand that you have it figured out. He doesn't demand that you have it all together. He welcomes the seekers. So Nicodemus acknowledges that there's something about Jesus that's intriguing He can't quite figure it out and he's leaning in. So imagine that you are a classically trained pianist and maybe you have studied at Juilliard and Belmont. You've graduated. uh, You've got master's degrees and PhDs. You, You have degrees in composition, music theory. And then comes someone uh, possibly from, you know, the Ozarks off of a train who's attracting all kinds of attention. The way that he plays is unheard of. No one has seen such talent. He has no formal education at all, doesn't even know how to read music possibly, but he's attracting attention. That's probably a little bit what like Nicodemus felt like with Jesus. Who is this carpenter from Galilee? And why is he so significant? But that's how he addresses Jesus. He responds, and I think it's funny, not to question, but to statement. Nicodemus says, you're obviously from the Lord. You have something that I've never seen, that Israel has never seen. No one can do these things except I see these things clearly. And so Jesus responds to Nicodemus's statement. I love this because Nicodemus has not asked no questions yet. And Jesus responds as if he did. And he says this in verse 3 of John chapter 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says something very interesting here. He knows Nicodemus. He knows that he's more religious uh, than most people. And he knows that he's also still searching and he wants to see the things of God. So Jesus responds, Nicodemus, you may have come here for a theology lesson. You may have come here to see another sign, another wonder, but I've got something else for you. But the thing is, is this, you can't even begin to see it unless you have a new heart. And what your heart is crying out for, what your soul desperately needs is to be remade and to be made new. But he uses this phrase and it has a ton of connotation, especially in our culture, born again. 
You, you may have heard this phrase used a time of two, or probably used especially in a way uh, that has a connotation of just radical, almost hyper-conservatism, just kind of a, in, like a nut, really. But it's one maybe we should embrace, because Jesus says these words. He, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born Again, what does it mean? The word anothen, it means born again, or it can mean born from above. I think it means both. Nicodemus surely takes it the first way, born again, uh, because he asks about crawling back into his mother's rooms. He doesn't get it on a physical level, and he certainly doesn't get it on a spiritual level. For Nicodemus, the Jew, the Pharisee, believed that the only necessary entrance that he needed to gain uh, into the kingdom of God was his heritage, his lineage, his genealogy, being born of Abraham, keeping the law with all of your heart guaranteed entrance. I'm sure that if Nicodemus had had a fill-in-the-blank test on this, Nicodemus, unless someone is blank, they can never see the kingdom of God. I'm sure of it. I would guarantee that everything that I have, that he would say, unless someone is circumcised into the nation of Israel, no one can see the kingdom of God. This is what Nicodemus would have believed. He would have believed and fully put all of his weight on the fact that he was from Abraham, a Jew, chosen. And Jesus comes into the scene on this dark night and says something completely different. When Jesus says your birth and your lineage is not sufficient, you have to do it all over again, start all over again. Jesus was delivering a haymaker to the religious system of the world. He's saying this, good works aren't enough. Your genealogy is not enough. It's something that John the Baptist would have preached and, and was very specific about as well. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist is saying this, Therefore produce fruits that are consistent with repentance, and do not start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. And so John the Baptist is pushing against those who would come on the scene and say, Hey, I'm good. I'm okay. I, like, I don't need all of this repentance stuff. I'm a Jew. We go to, this, to the tabernacle, we practice uh, the cleansings, we, we, we observe Passover, all of these things. And John the Baptist says, whoa, 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 uh, you don't understand. There's a new day and a new kingdom. Where you went to school or who you studied under is not enough. All of the things that you, have, that you believe have control over is not enough. The second birth, that can only happen from above, Jesus says. And what you desperately need, what's required if you want anything to do with the kingdom, is a new heart and a new soul. See, according to Jesus, being religious or a good person doesn't qualify you for the kingdom of God. This is really important. That according to Jesus, being religious or a good person, being moral, does not qualify you for the kingdom of God. We may believe that Nicodemus was too simple to get it. Maybe he was blind in his ways, but it wasn't something that he just made up. It was something deeply ingrained in him. Something that he had been taught ever since he could hear and listen in his culture, in his heritage. Something that he would have affirmed. And I'm sure it's something that he held on to as strongly as you might hold on to yours. Unless a person says a prayer, they can't see the kingdom of God. 
Unless someone goes to church most weeks, they can't see the kingdom of God. Unless someone mostly believes the Bible, regardless of how they live, they can't see the kingdom of God. Jesus says religion doesn't qualify you. Even more, Jesus says morality does not qualify you. Being a better person than the one next to you does not qualify you. Jesus says some very specific words that we have to lean into and we have to pay attention to. Unless a person is born again, he cannot, it's impossible for him to see the kingdom of God. Paul would write about this in, in various verses later in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He says, if, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. He's got a new life, a new birth. The old things are passed away. He's died to those things and all things have become new. He has been born again. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, he says this. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead is never to die again, and death no longer is a master over him. For death that he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you too, he said, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God, where? In Christ Jesus. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of this. And Nicodemus, at this point, is, is massively confused. He's trying, but he doesn't get it quite yet. It literally goes against everything that he's been taught. He's got a couple of problems to overcome. First is he doesn't believe that there's any need for a permanent sacrifice. As a Jew, especially the teacher of the law, he believes that the Day of Atonement once a year and all of the cleansings and sacrifices is sufficient. And he's happy to go along with his life doing those things. He doesn't know and he doesn't believe that the Messiah is here to save him. He believes that the Messiah has come to save Israel from Rome, to build a kingdom. But also, I think he's entirely different of what that kingdom will do and what it looks like. And as it seems, Jesus is speaking a different language. So he asks the question that all of us would ask if we were there too. As Gary Coleman's character, Arnold, would say in different strokes, what you talking about, Willis? Nobody under the age of 35 gets that. <laughs> I have a terrible practice of pretending uh, that I'm going to completely understand sometimes uh, when I have the slightest clue. Um, it's gotten me in trouble on multiple occasions, uh, and I, I literally can't stop myself. Uh, what happens is when someone's talking and they're very fascinated with whatever they're talking about and they seem to be talking as if it's elementary material, I just nod and, and pretend that I understand. This happens mostly when Jesse and Daniel are talking about coffee and flavor palettes and wheels and roasting techniques and all the things. I just say that this cup of coffee is fantastic, right? When Doug and Ray start talking about coding, I just shake my head and, and pretend that I know that zeros and ones do everything that we need them to do. Right? <laughs> but there's some things that are worth asking questions. And I imagine Nicodemus was tempted as well to pretend that he understands, especially from a prominent teacher in Israel as Jesus is speaking, someone who has no formal education, a carpenter from Nazareth. I'm sure that Nicodemus is tempted to be like, yeah, 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 I get it, Jesus, I get it. 
But I think there's something deeper inside for Nicodemus that he says, I cannot pass this up without pressing in and making sure that I understand because there's something clearly about this man who knows God. And he's saying to me, unless I'm born again, I can't even see the kingdom of God. It's important enough for Nicodemus to make a fool of himself and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I've got questions. Are you saying that I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? What are you talking about? He says to him in verse four, he says, how can a person be born when he's old? He can't enter into his mother's womb a second time, can he? And and be born. And Jesus says, truly, truly. Whenever Jesus says this, you should pay attention. It's as if uh, Jesus is placing a couple of things. What's happening is uh, in the Jewish law, uh, what would happen is if they were making a statement, a, a, a factual statement, most often it required a second witness or a second person teacher who would verify the teaching. So he would say truly, and then someone else would come and say truly. Jesus is doing a couple of things right here. One, he's saying, I need no one else to verify what I'm about to say. Second, he's saying, I promise. This is sure. You need to look and listen and understand. And so he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that which was born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you have to be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from and where it's going. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So a few things to unpack here, I think. I don't think Jesus is put off by his question. Instead, he pushes in to Nicodemus something that he does know. And he says that the person must be born of water and of spirit. In our context, uh, without really understanding some of the uh, overarching context, we might immediately think baptism. Jesus is saying that without being born again and baptized, no one can see the kingdom of heaven. We interpret it as unless someone is baptized and made new in the spirit, he can't see heaven. But I'll give you a really couple reasons why I I don't think this is the case. And most theologians don't either. Uh, First, if that were the case, Jesus was making very specific reference uh, to baptism. It would have been really odd for him to mention that first before the work of the Spirit. Uh, We know that a believer's baptism comes after they believe. If you remember Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, then the man asks, is there anything preventing me from being baptized? And he says, if you believe, then no. If Jesus is giving a prescription for eternal life and to see the kingdom of God, it would have been very odd for Jesus to intentionally switch those two things. That's minor, but important for me. A second thing, uh, besides the words of Jesus, is the example of Jesus. When he's on the cross and the thief who's crucified beside him acknowledges him and confesses that he is the Christ. Do you remember what he says on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. He grants the man eternal life without baptism. Now, so if Jesus is saying no one can even see the kingdom of God except if he's born of water and of spirit, then one of those statements that Jesus made is not true unless we don't really understand this first statement. There was no baptism, and it's still clear then that Jesus was pushing this person, this man, this thief on the cross straight to heaven. 
There's a few different things. First, I think uh, verse 6 describes two births. One that's from the flesh and the other from the spirit. So some uh, interpreters purpose that this born of water and spirit uh, uh, similarly refers to two births, one being natural and one being supernatural. Our physical birth being alive and also being made alive again. The most plausible interpretation born of water and spirit turns on a few factors. The first is this expression of parallel from above so that the only birth in view is the one that is brought about supernaturally. The second, the preposition of governs both water and spirit. So the most natural way of of taking this uh, phrase is is by putting them together and say uh, there's a water spirit source that stands as the origin of this regeneration. It still leaves a lot of confusion. But what I believe is happening to, to push this point further is, is Jesus pushes back on Nicodemus for not understanding something. And I think that's a clue. Jesus is pushing Nicodemus and he's saying, aren't you a teacher of Israel? And why don't you understand this? Jesus doesn't say that ungraciously with expectations that Nicodemus would not have had. It seems as if Jesus is pushing on Nicodemus. He says, oh, 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 don't you remember? Haven't you read these things before? And he pushes him back to the Old Testament to begin to discern what Jesus had in mind. He'll do it again with the story of Israel in the desert. But here he says, he asks a question, trying to understand Jesus, and he reaches back to the Old Testament. Notice these two passages, just a couple. Isaiah 44, verse 3. And God speaking to the people through the prophet, he says this, For I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. So already in just a few lines, we see this merging of this parallel, this this picture of God pouring his spirit out like water. My blessings on your descendants, they will spring up from the grass like poplars by the streams of water. And this one will say, I am the Lord's. And this one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And he will give himself Israel's name with honor. Ezekiel, the prophet, does this as well in chapter 36, verse 24. He says, For I will take uh, from the nations, and I will gather you from all of the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. It's a symbol of repentance and cleansing and washing. And I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. So God is saying to the people here through the prophet, I'm going to cleanse you from sin and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove the heart and stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and bring it about in the walk of my statutes and, and are careful and follow my ordinances. So in the Old Testament, we see this in these two passages, but all over that figuratively, uh, the Old Testament habitually refers to the renewal and cleansing, especially of water, especially when in conjunction with the Spirit. Even still, Nicodemus continues to struggle, probably not with the water cleansing part as much as the new birth and the salvation. So responds to him, how can these things be? Verse 9. Jesus answered and said to him, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, if we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen and you people do not accept our testimony, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. So Jesus, again, is claiming to have come from God. I think this is really, really important. We've talked about this already in our journey through the book of John, but it's one thing for someone else to make a claim about you. It's an entirely different thing for you to make a claim about yourself. And so in this sentence, Jesus is saying that he has come from heaven with a message from God and that he is the son of man that will be lifted up. And then Jesus pushes Nicodemus into a story that he's very familiar with. It comes to us from Numbers chapter 21, strange and intriguing. It says this in verse four, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient because of the journey and the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we're disgusted with this miserable food. I'm uh, not the way to, to talk to God, but they do. The Lord had brought them out of Egypt. They had seen the 10 plagues. They had watched the Red Sea split. Their feet walked across on dry land, and they saw the nation of Egypt be swallowed by that same sea. They saw and tasted and ate food that mysteriously came from above. And now they're saying, why have you done this to us? And so the Lord sent judgment on them by the way of fiery serpents. I have no idea what that looks like, but I'm sure that you don't want to see it. And the people, and they were bit, and so many of the people of Israel died. Verse 7, so the people came to Moses and says, we have sinned. Because we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord and he will remove the serpents from us. And so Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and put it on a flagpole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on the flagpole. And it came about that if a serpent bit someone and he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. It's a fascinating story and one that I have a lot of questions about. It speaks of the complaining and provision and, and saving of Israel. God sent his judgment and it came forth of serpents. And when the people asked for it, he made a way of salvation. The first thing I notice is that the snake wasn't preventative. It was prescriptive. The snake didn't keep anyone from getting bitten. The snake didn't keep anyone from perishing. It's that they were already perishing. And the snake lifted up in the wilderness, saved them. Their faith and their obedience saved them. This was their only chance for hope. Their only chance at life. It seems crazy but it also seems very plausible that some chose not to look. The story tells us that if they looked, they were healed. I think in the drawings and the flannel graphs that I saw as a kid, if you remember those, 
right? Moses was like in the corner and all the people of Israel were kind of laying there and all they had to do was look up, right? It's probably not that simple. I would imagine if you remember, the nation of Israel is massive. It's huge, probably millions of people. And so this flagpole with the serpent on it probably uh, was, uh, it was necessary to walk towards it. To come from your suffering and say, I'm suffering, I'm in pain, I don't feel like moving. But yet, Moses says, if I look at this thing, I will live. It's curious to me that some chose not to. Have you ever wondered why? Maybe they didn't feel so afflicted. You ever thought about that before? Maybe the snake bit them and they thought, oh, I, I, I jumped back just in time and it, di- it didn't get me really good. I've just got a little red mark on it. So I'm gonna go about my day. I'm gonna go about my life. I don't, I don't need to make that journey towards this fiery serpent. That's for the people who were bitten really bad. I'm good. I can just put a little solve on this and we'll be good to go. Maybe they were trying to heal their wounds themselves and maybe they thought they could. Maybe they put a little oil in there and it seemed to start getting better a little bit. It wasn't quite as red. But scripture says if they were bitten, they would die. I think it it references and reflects some of our circumstance as well. Scripture is clear. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, for the wages of sin is There's no little sin. There's no, I barely got bit by it. I'm typically a good person. There's no categories of sin, except Jesus says to us that unless we're born again, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says that all sin leads to death. Later on, in that same Verse, he says, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, just like that, being born again requires us to take our eyes off of ourselves, to trust him, to look at him. And I want you to think of this verse entirely different from now on. I know that we've read it. I know that we've seen it. I know that we've quoted it many times before we ever really realized what it is. But place John 3.16 in the context of this conversation with Nicodemus, who's searching and seeking and wondering and confused and thinks that he has eternal life in his pockets by his genealogy and his good works and his morality. And Jesus places something else on the table And he says, listen, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world so the world might be saved through him. I want you to remember this and see this, understand it and soak it in, that Jesus offers new life to everyone who believes. Jesus offers new life to everyone who believes. Maybe the 
most prolific words spoken by Jesus in all of Scripture. It's the mission statement, the reason why he came, and the love that the Father has. And the reason is you. This is the reason that the Father has loved you so much that he sent his only son. Like the serpent that was lifted up, Jesus would be lifted up. He would hang on a cross and provide himself as the sacrifice, not just for our sins, but for your sins. No matter how complex and how convoluted, no matter for what duration, He came for your sins. You know what I love about this is there's there's no disqualifiers. There's not a limit that you can bring to Jesus. There is an amount of baggage that's allowed. It's not like the airline where Jesus weighs your sins when you come to him and says, that's a little bit too much. You're going to have to pay extra for those. There's no one who has too much sin or too much addiction. There isn't anyone who's disqualified from looking to Jesus. And he promises you that when you look to him, instead of yourself, instead of your morality, instead of your religion, instead of your family's decision, instead of your spiritual heritage, instead of your own way, when you look to him and believe, he's given you salvation and righteousness and you will have it. He has finished it. I think the most difficult thing is is two things for us. Christ didn't prevent, didn't come to prevent us from perishing. He did not come to rescue us from a possibility of death. Christ came to save us in our perishing, on our way, already condemned to death. We know deep down that that we're not good. We know our thoughts. We know the things that we have in our heart. And Jesus said that there's someone who's descended from heaven. And if we've hated in our hearts, it's like we've murdered. Jesus says your hearts condemn you. When when you have self-control enough for your hands and your feet not to follow, your heart condemns you. He says if you've lusted in your heart, then you've committed adultery. If we told a lie, it's not a mistake. We become a liar. Our heart is in desperate need of a new life. I think the second thing that's difficult for us to understand is that we just need to call out and believe. It seems like it should be more complicated than that. It seems like because of the past that we have, the baggage that we carry, that that we must have years ahead of us of making this right, of trying to do something that that makes up for all of the wrong. I mean, shouldn't we have like a, a like a community service thing? Where it's like we, you know, we're we're given all of this this sentence and Jesus looks at us and says, Yeah, you were pretty terrible. That's gonna take every Saturday for the rest of your life. And to be honest, I'll just say this, to be honest, many of us would gladly accept that. 
Because we know we're, our baggage. We know our mistakes behind us. And if we could physically do something to obtain our own salvation, I believe that we would be all in. Jesus says, hey, there's not enough community service in the world to undo what you've done. You cannot save yourself. And so he says, you have to believe in me. Uh, Pastor Skip Hezek says, the word belief here means much more than to acknowledge. It doesn't just mean that there's a God up there somewhere and he's got a son named Jesus and I check off an initial by that statement and say, yeah, I, I, I believe that. Because there was a group in chapter 2 that believed in his name and Jesus did not con, uh, commit himself to them. If you remember, there was a group just last week that said they believed in the signs and wonders and all that he did. Jesus says, I don't know if you'd believe quite. We also know that in Greek, this word to believe means to rely on, to trust in, to stick to, to adhere to. Or I love this definition, uh, to put all of your weight on. There's a story of a translator in a tribal situation who was translating the Bible, and he found out that the language, the receptor language of the tribe that uh, he was working with did not have a term, a good term to use for belief. And he was trying desperately to, uh, to wordsmith this verse, this passage, this great promise of God. And he was trying his best to try to uh, gain some word, some thought, or something that he could communicate what we must do to inherit eternal life. As he tells the story, he was sitting around this fire with some of the elders, describing desperately over and over and over again until one of the elders stood up from the campfire, ran into the tent, and lay down in his cot and said, You mean like this? The missionary was confused for a second, but then he realized what he must write. For that tribe, John 3.16 was rendered like this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever puts his full weight on him will never perish but have eternal life. Some of you have heard this great story of a tightrope walker many years ago named the Great Blondin. He could stretch wire across buildings um, and once Niagara Falls, he did incredible feats. Um, and this was many decades ago. Uh, he would walk the tightrope and walk back. Um, and the world would look on in amazement as we all would today if he was here. People would applaud him. On one occasion, he put a blindfold on and he walked across and walked back blindfolded suspended, I think it was eight or nine stories up between two buildings, blindfolded, walked across the tightrope and back. And the crowds on the ground and on onlooking buildings just literally stood there, probably some waiting for him to fall. And he didn't. Back and back again, blindfolded. The crowd erupted, of course, in uh, applause. And then he wanted to top that, so he got on a bicycle and he rode across there and back. The applause became louder, of course. And then he crossed with a wheelbarrow full of bricks. In one session, he did this four times by himself, blindfolded, 
rode a bike, and then he pushed a wheelbarrow full of bricks across and back again. It was as if he was waiting to die. And of course, each time the applause grows louder and louder and louder and louder. And he gets back across from pushing the the wheelbarrow full of bricks. And he says, how many believe I could do it again with a person in the wheelbarrow? And the, the crowd went wild. And then he said, can I have a volunteer? Do you know that no one stepped forward? It's because it's, it's, it's one thing to look on from a distance and say, yeah, 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 yeah. It's something completely different to get in the wheelbarrow. And when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, that whoever believes and places their weight on him should not perish, not because that's a possibility, but because that's what's happening, whether you understand it or recognize it or not. He will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's an incredible promise. And it's one that's for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this incredible promise that you've given us that guarantees us from your mouth, from your heart, straight from the Father and heaven itself, that you have come to save us, to give us new life. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us grab that new life. I pray for those in the room uh, that may be scared to to crawl into that uh, preferable wheelbarrow and place all of our weight and trust in you. Lord, would you give them the courage even now? Lord, for those in the room that have experienced new life and are ravaged by the enemy who comes to steal it, to kill it, to destroy it, God, would you help them desperately to cling on to you and to your promise? As we continue to to reflect and respond, I, I just want to encourage you and to ask you to contemplate. Have you put your full weight in Jesus? Have you put your full weight in Jesus? Not a, a prayer that you prayed that somebody said, just repeat after me. Have you literally put your, the weight of your life and eternity in Jesus? I think like Nicodemus, this is too important of a matter to risk not looking like a fool. As if one could for walking away from death into life. But I believe the enemy is at work. He's trying to convince us, no, 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 no. You've got this, you've got this, you've got this. Would you be willing to place your full weight in Jesus? As, as our team begins to play, our, our prayer partners are in back. And I would ask that maybe today, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never put your weight on him, we would love to pray with you and, and show you what it means, what it looks like to place your faith in Jesus. 
We've got people trained that, that, that would love to pray with you. You'll find no condemnation there. Just a hand leading you to Jesus. I'll be back there as well. I would love to pray with you. Maybe for some of you, you, you've taken that life, this new life with Jesus, and it feels like the enemy just knocks your knees out from out of you, just over and over and over and over again. He's, he's after you. He's got his nails in you. You just need to grab onto Jesus. We would love to pray with you. you have just even enough courage, just enough courage to just, when we stand and sing, just turn and, and walk straight to the back. We would love to pray with you. Lord, I pray that these words would fall on good soil. That it would grow roots in our heart. And that on our worst days, we would remember we are loved by you. And on our best days, when we're tempted to believe in our own morality, Lord, I pray that we would remember that it's not good enough, that we're loved by you, that we desperately need you. All of us, each one.